Today, on The Lab Report, we talk about GI inflammation. Hot and angry GI tracts. And what do you do about it? Mm, put it in timeout? Yeah, that is kind of what you do about it. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. Hello. Hi, Michael. Hi. How's it going? Pretty good. Welcome to the Lab Report. Thank you. Man, this feels a lot better. What? Just leaning back in my chair, got the microphone all situated Uh so I can just relax. (laughs) Feel a lot more comfortable in my own skin, which is a first for me, really. Well, well, I think it really comes down to it. It's been weeks and weeks and you finally learned how to adjust the microphone. Well, you know, I'm a little slow on the pickup sometimes, but I got to tell you, it's okay. This feels great. (laughs) I feel nice and calm and relaxed. Good. I mean, on the external. Internally, Um, it's still just chaos. Yeah. But at least, you know, externally, I well, good for you. I feel pretty good. Good. How about you? How are you doing? I'm having some thermoregulatory issues, actually. Oh, boy. What's that mean? Well, it's <laughs> <laughs> it's really cold out. I'm hot and I'm cold. So uh, it's cold out, uh, right? Uh, when we walked in the building. I'm sorry. And then the heat's on. And then I go into my office and it's full of windows and it's freezing in there. Yeah. But I can't turn on the heater because it blows a fuse. Yeah. So then I thought, okay, I got this. So I wore a big, bulky, heavy sweater today, and now we're up in the podcast room, and I'm sweating. But you know what else is hot? What's that? Inflammation. Oh, that's a good point, too. You know that? I just want to say that it sounds really hard for you. <laughs> I'm sorry that you're. What? I'm sorry that you're going what? through this. We won't call the ambulance just yet. I'm so whiny. But, I apologize. Uh, no, I, I feel bad. I can see you sweating, actually. And I'm, <laughs> I'd, rather than doing anything about it, I just thought I'd stare at the beads of sweat. That's on what your I'm forehead. saying. I think it's because you're staring at me in a very strange well, way. Well, I did adjust the microphone, so now right. I can just stare directly at you with. Maybe that's why I'm sweating. It's not a thermoregulatory the problem. Of a thousand suns. Ouch. Which brings us also back to inflammation. Mm. And I want to start here. When I, I always like to point out our different perspectives and backgrounds, and I start with this question. Is it because I'm from the Northeast and you're from the Midwest? That's what I mean. Yeah. Oh, no, you mean conventional versus functional. Yes. Ah. If you were in primary care mm-hmm. and somebody came in and they had GI complaints, right? where would you start? Well, given my history and my background, I'm the queen of the alarm symptom. Right? Yeah. I always start there. Because you've seen the worst of the worst. Yeah, because that was my bread and butter, right. alarm symptoms. Right. And so if someone comes into your office, you're going to do your usual history and physical, but you're looking for things like fever, pain, blood, right? Right. right. You're also looking at chronicity, you know, acute things acutely, chronic things chronically. So if someone has pain or one of those symptoms that started yesterday, you're a little bit more worried than if they were to tell you, oh, it's been going on since I was 12. Yeah. You know, so it's, you're, and you're it depends looking on severity too. Yeah. If they're like, oh, you know, I've got a little bit of gas and right. get occasional pain here and there. Right. As compared so, to somebody who's like, yeah, I have 16 bowel movements a day and I have pain all the time. Right. So you're looking for acuity. You're looking for alarm symptoms. So you always start there. Yeah. Due diligence around whether something's acutely bad. And so you would, obviously, if you see one of those alarm systems, you're going to refer for right. imaging. Or imaging, and, yeah, right. Exactly. Right. But if none of those alarm 
signs are there, uh-huh. then what would be kind of your next step? Well, tell you would t- you think about something like a stool test? Well, the idea of a stool test is different in conventional medicine, but now that I know about things like the GI effects, right. that's, that's an immediate go-to. I mean, right. there's so much ridiculous information you can glean from the GI effects that it seems like a logical next step. From a conventional standpoint, a stool test is pretty much used as, as a culture. To yeah, look a for culture a looking for an infectious pathogen, pathogen right, right? Right. Or blood. Okay. So, but now you're saying now that you have experienced this type of medicine mm-hmm. and this education and mm-hmm. learned about stool testing, would you think about a stool test? I would for several reasons. Like I said, there's so many different scenarios that you can get from the GI effects that would lead you down other paths. It's a really good first step. And additionally, there are markers on the GI effects like calprotectin, which can guide you one way or the other whether or not someone needs colonoscopy. So it's one of those steps that's really a, a game changer right. in your decision-making tree. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, we sort of start from high level of the decision tree saying, okay, somebody comes in, you've ruled out the really scary stuff, mm-hmm. bowel ischemia, cancer, right. all those sort of things. And now your next level is really distinguishing, is this IBS or is this IBD? Mm-hmm. Is that fair? That's, that's like, one that's, of them, yeah. Ma- yeah. Maybe celiac would be in there, but celiac is somewhat categorized as an IBD anyway. Okay. So that would be your next level. And to get there, you could refer, again, mm-hmm. for a colonoscopy biopsy to distinguish that. Right. Or you could do something like a stool test, the GI effects, that includes calprotectin, which is a very sensitive, specific marker for neutrophilic inflammation in the GI tract, helps distinguish IBS from IBD. It's very sensitive and specific to do that. So that could save, you know, a, a, a trip to the gastroenterologist. Yeah, and that's, you know, colonoscopy is an invasive procedure, not without risk right. and expense and a lot for a patient to endure. So you don't want to do that needlessly. Yeah. Right. So a test like the GI effects can help make that decision. Right. And so from the standpoint of a stool test or at least a comprehensive stool test like the GI effects, Mm -hmm. one of the most fundamental and important markers on that test, in my opinion, is the calprotectin because it gives you that distinguishing factor in your decision tree. And then once you rule out IBD, now you're left with a functional bowel disorder and then it's just a matter of, okay, so what are the root causes of this functional bowel disorder? And that's what takes us to kind of the functional medicine approach, the, the dig in, digestion, absorption, inflammation, gut microbiome, intestinal permeability, and nervous system. Which is all right on that test. Right, exactly. So that first marker, which is an inflammatory marker we're talking today about inflammation in the gut, I think having a calprotectin is an incredible tool just to help weed out the patients that you're you're going to be screening for inflammatory bowel disorder. Well, let's just define what calprotectin is first and foremost. It's a very sensitive marker for neutrophilic inflammation. So there's neutrophilic invasion, it, things like overt pathogenic infections, mm-hmm. inflammatory bowel disease, mm-hmm. sometimes neoplasms, cancers, NSAID enteropathy. Yes. There's another place you can see that. All those things can elevate calprotectin, although it should be stated that calprotectin is not in any way a marker for cancer. Absolutely not. But it can be elevated in neoplasm, as you said. Right. And in fact, calprotectin has been FDA cleared to help distinguish inflammatory bowel disease from irritable bowel syndrome. Yeah. Which is an important, makes it an important marker. Yeah. But the, the way that I think about it is with, you have to have a lot going on to where you get neutrophilic invasion of the GI tract. Mm-hmm. 
you know, it's not the same as having an immune response that's IgA mediated, even IgE eosinophilic mediated. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot. It takes histological changes, essentially. It's not subtle. Right. And that's why it's, it's a very, very good marker for ruling out some of these significant pathologies. Right. So when you do this GI effects as part of your decision making, it's a great tool right there, right off the bat, just by virtue of that one marker. However, there are other inflammatory markers in that section on the GI effects, which can also lead you down other paths. Yeah. So the next one on the test is eosinophil protein X, which is, as it sounds, a marker of eosinophilic activity, IgE mediated responses. And so some of the things we think about with IgE response would be food allergies. Mm-hmm. Parasitic infections, and some when, parasitic infections, yeah, some not par- all. And not particularly, all. I think about worms yeah. with eosinophilic activity. The, the eosinophils historically in the gut were really there to combat infection with worms. That's one of the main responsibilities. So it's a very interesting concept, too, because we don't encounter worms in today's society, at least in the developed world. We don't encounter parasites and worms particularly very often. So you have this entire function of the immune system that goes pretty much unutilized. And when you think about the rates of atopia, atopic conditions. I was like, is that a word? Atopia. I don't know. Yet another word you make up. I, well, yeah, you know, well, it's you fun. You got to keep yourself entertained, you know. <laughs> I will also say this, though, Michael. Our data analysis by our clinical evidence department did show some correlation with elevated EPX and things like GRDS. So there are some other parasites besides worms that yeah. can give you an elevation in EPX. Yeah, good point. Good point. And anytime you have inflammation to the degree that is creating histological changes and neutrophilic recruitment, what you're having is luminal damage. Right. And anytime that you have luminal damage, you're also going to see eosinophil protein X. Because it's actually, the eosinophil protein X is re- released from the lamina propria, which is one of the submucosal layers. Right. So if you so have damage, damage, you're spilling some of that eosinophilic activity into the lumen of the gut. Right. The other things that you think about when you have an elevated EPX, if you ruled out a food allergy or a frank parasitic infection, things like eosinophilic gastroenteritis or microscopic colitis, some of those other eosinophilic invasive colitis Yeah, and even, you know, we think about EOE, Mm -hmm. eosinophilic esophagitis, and is it possible to pick any of that up on a stool test? And we've gotten that question several times. Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. think what I normally say to that is I have seen that. I have seen it too. I have seen people, or at least I've spoken with clinicians who run a GI effects. Their patient has EOE and we see elevated eosinophil protein X on a stool test. Now we don't know how sensitive that marker is for that because when you think about it, you're picking something up in the stool that originated all the way up in the esophagus. Like that's a long way to travel. And so what the reference range might be to be able to set, to distinguish that you know, it's really, really difficult. And there's a, it also begs the question that if you have an eosinophilic reaction in your esophagus, might you be having it elsewhere? Great question. We just don't know that answer. But anecdotally, we speak to this on the phone all the time. We actually do see it. I don't yeah. have the specific mechanism around that, though, but we do see it anecdotally. Yeah. But I also agree with you in the sense that if there's intimal damage such that EPX is being released, 
odds are there's something else, you know, calprotectin more likely than not is elevated, especially in things like inflammatory bowel disease. Right. Not always, though. Right, but. right. So you start with calprotectin as kind of your biggest marker for GI inflammation, neutrophilic inflammation that helps you distinguish IBS from IBD. Then you've got eosinophil protein X, which is IgE-mediated inflammation. And like we said, that could be from a microscopic colitis, eosinophilic colitis, or it could be a food allergy and not just, not a food sensitivity. Got to make that distinction, mm -hmm. right? right? We're not talking about a, a sensitivity reaction. We're talking about a true allergy where somebody's got, you know, the, the mast cell destabilization, histamine response, that whole cascade of things. That's what we're talking about with eosinophils. Right. And then the third marker in that section is fecal secretory IgA, which is actually a class of antibodies that are made and secreted right in the layer of the mucosa. And the problem with this marker is that it's pretty nonspecific, right? It's really just, I think you once called it the canary in the coal mine. Yeah, that's the way I think about it. I think about, you know, it's, it's going to tell you that something is going on with the mucosal barrier. It's not necessarily going to tell you what it is. But at least it's telling you that there's, hey, the, there's a reaction on, from the mucosa standpoint. Something's causing an um, immune response when it's elevated. Right. So when it's elevated, you need to go investigate the cause. And that can be anything from intestinal permeability to a potential pathogen, SIBO, IBD. There's a lot of things that can make that elevate. So you really have to go looking to the rest of the test for the explanation. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think about food sensitivities here. Mm -hmm. Whether food sensitivities, I, uh, I think IgA secretion in response to food sensitivity is very probable. I think about dysbiosis, potential pathogens on board, opportunistic yeast. You know, there's a whole host permeability, perhaps. There's a whole host of different things that are going to disrupt mucosal barrier. And that's where we're going to see elevation in fecal secretory IgA. But what about fecal secretory IgA when it's low? Oh, great question. And this is a very interesting topic. And so Technically, there's not a lot of literature around low fecal secretory IgA. However, if you think about it theoretically, it's actually an antigen-presenting complex where it's needed to help with that gut immunologic response. And there is some literature around some extreme athletes like marathon runners having low salivary IgA. So if sure. you think about immunoglobulins are just made in any mucosal surface. Sure. And so there is that concept that runners are known to have, quote unquote, increased leaky gut. Yeah. And the thinking is that there may be a loss of resiliency yeah. around that. And yeah. the problem is there's not a lot of literature. But theoretically, yeah. it makes sense that this could be a significant, significant thing clinically. Well, and it's interesting because we know that chronic stress lowers immune adaptivity. <laughs> adaptivity. Why Again, would, is that a word? I don't know. It seems like it should be. Okay. Maybe just the way that you say them that just makes me or laugh. Or maybe it's the questioning <laughs> look on my face as I'm saying it. <laughs> but stress lowers the immune response and the immune function. And we talked about cotropin releasing hormone right. playing a part in that. Right. And we know that chronic stress can lower mucosal IgA. So it begs the question in, in people who have low IgA, is that an indicator of low immune response and low barrier function? How low does the fecal secretory IgA have to be before you're starting to become suspicious? That's a difficult question to answer because there's really not a lot of literature around low fecal secretory IgA. And we always have that question coming in from clinicians saying, does this mean this person has selective IgA deficiency, uh -huh. which this test can't make that leap? Right. That requires a serum test. But right you know, it exists. It's on your list of possibilities. 
Yeah, you can't use a stool test, stool IgA, to be able to determine whether somebody has selective IgA deficiency, for sure. Right. Uh, the other thing that's suspicious is when I see all of the inflammatory markers below detectable levels, hmm. below detectable calprotectin, below eosinophil, eosinophil protein X, and IgA, all of those on the low side. I, I start to wonder about you know immune function in the GI tract and whether there's some barrier integrity immune function problems. I'm not sure because they're supposed to be low. Wow, we just disagreed. I know. I always wondered when the first time <laughs> we disagreed on the podcast would be, and it just happened. It only well, took... 13 episodes. Well, I'll tell you, I'm not completely disagreeing with you. Oh, never mind. I take it. No, I'm just saying, like, you can be suspicious, but they are supposed to be normal. They're supposed to be low, right? So the fact that they're low could be completely normal. You can be suspicious and look for other things. And that's kind of who you are in general, suspicious and always looking for other things. That's true. It's my Capricorn rising. Right. (laughs) And my Aries moon is like, nah, these are fine. These are good. Yeah. Move on. So, but the other thing about that is we found in the data that when we were creating this methane dysbiosis score and we were finding this bacterial commensal profile that was associated with high methane production, that they had, those individuals had a higher likelihood of lower inflammatory markers and that there was this seemingly connection between high methane production and lowered immune function, which also correlated to infection with blastocystis or dientamoeba and maybe even some potential pathogens. So it does it does beg the question that is this setting the GI tract up for some sort of immune suppression or barrier function disruption? Can I ask a chicken and egg question? Yeah, why don't you go ahead and ask a chicken and the egg question? Well, if someone has methane and low inflammation markers, is it that low inflammatory conditions make it a happy place for methane to live or does the methane lower the inflammation or is it neither Mm. is it the particular dietary influences that create the commensal bacteria profile to create methane to lower immune function so now we're adding a third variable here chicken egg what's the third chicken egg and the what that's what makes this very very complicated Mm. and you have to understand that it's a relationship and a balance all the time and and you know whether a person's individual predisposition to have a particular microbiome is is part of that too but i mean i think a more important question is are you a chicken person or an egg person chicken yeah, it does It does seem more likely that chicken was first, doesn't it? I, I don't think you can say that. I was just saying I, just I like did. chicken. I, well, oh, and chickens. I see. They're kind of cute. I'm not necessarily answering that philosophical question. I'm not sure we can I answer am. that within the midst of this podcast. Wow, that was definitive. Well, when you think about it, if you have a particular species, right? Of chicken? No, eggs? just, just, just a, a pre-chicken, right? What's a pre-chicken? Maybe, that doesn't even exist. That's an egg. Right, and so maybe they they originally weren't maybe they were giving birth to live animals and they weren't giving they weren't laying eggs wow. but then there was a particular adaptation it was the chicken that had the adaptation to then be able to lay eggs so it was obviously the chicken wow right you're not going to get just dna from an egg oh my god right it's got to it's got to form some you have to have that particular organism to to first and then the organism learns how to replicate so in essence you have just solved this major philosophical question I mean, I'm, it's up for debate still, but I think it's pretty crystal clear. But now I'm hungry. Okay, so I think we've talked a lot about what these particular biomarkers do and how they relate to different clinical presentations from an inflammatory standpoint. But let's get into what you actually do when you see these elevations or mm. with these particular clinical conditions. So, for example, calprotectin is elevated. Mm-hmm. You're thinking, I need to rule out IBD. You're thinking about a GI referral. 
Right. Well, it depends on the level. If it's, you know, greater than 120, 120, if it's, you know, in the high zone, you're actually really going to go through those alarm symptoms. You'd consider sending to a gastroenterologist right. because really you need a, a scope. It's not something you'd want to miss. And if it's over 200, they need to go like yesterday. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's very little we're going to do to give you information around that other than call a gastroenterologist. Right. <laughs> Print out your <laughs> referral sheet. <laughs> fill it out. But it's a little it's a little squishier when it's lower, right? So if it's somewhere, you know, not quite zero, but up to, you know, 50 to 100, you're really looking at some of the other things. You're going to ask about NSAID use, right? Yeah. If Depending on their age, when was their last screening colonoscopy? You're sure. looking for other things on the test that might explain that, like, you know, pathogenic infection. Right. And so you're looking at some of those causes and trying to correct those. Right, right. So primarily you're, you're walking the steps of investigation, right. the decision tree and mm -hmm. DDXing what could be causing elevated calprotectin, which is going to be an IBD, neoplasm, or some of these other things that you just mentioned. Correct. So what about eosinophil protein X? That's elevated. Uh -huh. Calprotectin is not elevated. Mm -mm. What are you thinking? Well, besides going through all the list of possibilities like we talked about, you think, okay, well, if it's a parasite probably going to pick it up on the GI effects. Right. You will have seen it. Right. Right. You can consider food antibody testing if you're thinking about a food allergy. Yes. Right? So serum IgE. Uh, particularly, yeah, yeah, particularly IgE. Right. And the thing to note, you know, we can test IgEs. We've got 24 of them available on the serum IgE test. And that's not all that somebody could be allergic to. My brother is allergic to strawberries. Which Random. Is which is why I, I always say strawberries on the phone like it's a common thing, and I don't think it's <laughs> that's very random. Common. No. I know it's like you know like a strawberry allergy. It's like what, and so but that's what we're, we're talking about a true allergy. Okay, so you're talking about identifying the source of that food allergy, but right? Then what do you do? Well, removal. If you identify the source of the IgE allergy, we're generally talking about avoidance of that food for life, if possible, and and there's some negotiation that can take place there depending on the level of severity of the immune response right mm -hmm. especially mm -hmm. if somebody's got a you know stage three stage four stage five immune response to then they're they're susceptible to going into anaphylaxis like that's serious they need to avoid that particular antigen for life if it's something they didn't even know they had an allergy to and they don't have any symptoms some clinicians will have a little bit more of a conversation about their ability to, to tolerate that antigen. And that is definitely clinician to patient conversation specific. There's no set guidelines on that. Okay. The other thing you can do is you can try to do everything you can to stabilize mast cells. And so by that, you know, we're talking about things like vitamin C first and foremost, but there's other mast cell stabilizers out there. Bioflavonoids are really great mast cell stabilizers and not just from a supplement standpoint, but you can talk about your, your berries, your, your purple, your red berries, and you can be talking about coercetin. Coercetin is a mast cell stabilizer as well. And it's really great in the GI tract. The only thing is that there's some concern around bioavailability of coercetin as well. And if you're trying to get it in the GI tract, what I'll normally actually instruct patients to do is to I'll buy a, a powder of it, a powdered coercetin, and actually have them chew it to a certain extent before swallowing. Because the thought there is that that tends to activate and make it more bioavailable and will make more of an active compound when it gets down into the GI tract. Is there any room in that conversation for things like omega-3s or curcumin? 
turmeric. Curcumin, yeah, absolutely. Curcumin, turmeric, bromelain, boswellia, all those. Now we're talking about those being more, they can assist in immune stabilization, mast cell stabilization. I'm not sure the mechanism there, but I tend to think of them as being inflammation modulators. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, this is an inflammatory process. We're talking about GI inflammation. Those can absolutely, even fish oil can be used from an inflammation modulation standpoint in these patients as well. Yeah, it's a good point. What about the third marker there, fecal secretory IgA. When that's elevated, what would you do about that? What's your intervention? Again, it's similar to eosinophil protein X. First, identify what the cause is. It's the canary in the coal mine. So what's what killed the canary, right? So I'm trying to figure out, is this a food sensitivity? Is this a potential pathogen? Is this coming from dysbiosis? Is this permeability? All those things, right? Why are you smiling? <laughs> I'm thinking about looking for the canary killer. It just made me <laughs> laugh. Right, right. Look, that was a metaphor that wasn't <laughs> terrible. It was. And it was so... Great. Once I identify that, I know what my treatment's going to be. If it's a potential pathogen, then I might be I might be more inclined to treat that potential pathogen looking at the other circumstances in the case history. If it's a food sensitivity, I'd be considering an elimination diet or <laughs> depending on how willing the patient is going to and how compliant they're likely to be for a true elimination diet, then I would be uh, considering doing like an IgG food antibody test to look and see what are the different IgE re- IgG responses. And I that's said that emphatically because with fecal secretory IgA, I'm going to be looking for IgGs. With eosinophil protein X, I'm going to be looking for IgEs. Okay. So while you're identifying those food sensitivities and you're- For our them, protocol. Right. So you you're instituting your four, some people say five, our protocol. But with that, there's also the concept of needing to heal the gut if, if there is some intestinal permeability. And yeah. we often talk about gut healing protocols, and naturopaths are the best at this as far as <laughs> healing mean. herbs and things that people do to help heal the gut. There's a lot of different protocols people use. There's a lot of different protocols people use. I use a ton of glutamine. Why? Uh, why does glutamine help with gut repair? Well, how? Like everyone gives glutamine when you're talking about intestinal permeability. My question is why? You know, I'm so glad that you asked that. You are? But yeah, because I've really been looking for an opportunity to redo the segment of what does it do? Oh, that's a great segue. But right in the middle of this? Oh, yeah. I think we need a little bit of a break. Okay, good. Uh, I need to go get some coffee before I, <laughs> I need to figure out what glutamine does and how it works. All right. Well, let's start the segment then. Glutamine. What does it do? Ooh. <laughs> there it is. That's it. That's a good good bed there. Um, so glutamine is an amino acid, mm-hmm. right? It's actually one of the body's most abundant amino acids that it utilizes, mostly stored in skeletal muscle. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, huge amounts of glutamine stored in skeletal muscle because it's very quickly and readily used as a fuel source. Um. Okay. And because it's such a readily available fuel source, it is really, really helpful in areas of the body that are rapidly turning over, right? Okay. And, and the mucosa, the epithelial lining of the entire GI tract is turning over very, very rapidly. Mm-hmm. And so it requires uh, high amounts of glutamine. So in this particular circumstance, this is why we, we provide glutamine uh, at high amounts to the actual tissue that's turning over rapidly and that helps in its rebuild and repair. 
so it's like a fuel source for the lining of the intestine. Yeah, that's right. And um, it's also been shown to help with uh, immunity as well, which is some thoughts around why it may help with gut barrier function, um, is that it's, it's been shown to have some effect for the immune system. Um, some studies have shown that uh, it's helped in immunodeficiency. And, you know, on that note around mucosal integrity, some of the studies around mucosal destruction and erosion because of chemotherapy agents, glutamine has ah. been preventative. Yeah, they use it in mucositis. Yeah, exactly. Mucositis and enteritis, um, especially chemotherapy-induced. Nice. So I, um, I think we figured out what glutamine does. What does it do? What does it do? Now we know. So what about some of the other things, like the actual healing so, herbs? Right. So then we reach for things that we call either mucilaginous herbs or Ooh. mucilaginous substances because that's going to help soothe first and foremost and help to promote the the mucus layer of the GI lining. So we think about things like slippery elm. We think about marshmallow or althea. I, I use a ton of aloe. And the thing about aloe that I've always had this particular opinion, I don't know if other people have shared this, but the thing about aloe that's so healing is the actual gel of the aloe. So I don't use aloe in a powder form. Sometimes it, it might be in a, a combination product that I'm using, but I don't think that that's a good form of aloe to be using. And I'm, I'm totally open to being wrong on that. And, and maybe we could have somebody from a nutraceuticals point of view maybe correct me on this. But therapeutically, I am much more likely to actually have the person go to the store and buy the mm. aloe gel without the latex because I've just found clinically that works a lot better as far as soothing and providing that mucosal effect. What about other things like colostrum and actual IgA products? Yeah, colostrum and your your bovine immunoglobulins. That's a hard one yes. for me. Those I think are, are going to be helpful, but in a different way, right? Those are talking about barrier function and immune function, which is, you know, inherently tied to this, but it's not something that's going to be directly soothing. I think it can be helpful if especially somebody's got permeability and they've got a bunch of food sensitivities on board and they've got maybe low fecal secretory IgA, you know, there's compromised barrier function. I think that would be a great time to reach for your colostrum or your IgA. Okay, we're totally running over on time here, so <laughs> we need to get to question of the day super fast. All right, let's go. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'll use one of the short versions go. of the, the, the intro here. Oh, great. Just because. The shorter, the better. Okay, great. Wait a minute. What? I bet you said this was a shorter version. That seemed pretty long to me. No, no, it's the shortest one we have. Mm. I'm pretty sure. I'm sure we can shorten that more. I'll work on Please. it. Please. I'll work on it. Well, the question of the day is, can you speak to what the inflammatory markers might look like in a kid? Yeah. Not in a well, kid, maybe young, toddler, or infant. Or, yes and no. Yeah. Um, we don't necessarily know. The inflammatory markers in children are actually really interesting because children's guts tend to be more permeable by nature. Uh, they're developing tolerance, immune tolerance to a lot of different foods. And uh, the thought there is that that part of the reason why their guts are more permeable is to assist in that. We also know that calprotectin levels are elevated in children and that's, that's normal physiologic. So 
it's hard to know what to do if you see an elevated calprotectin in a child because, and we're talking about children, especially zero to four, because it's normal for them to have elevated calprotectin. It's normal for them to have elevated fecal secretory IgA. So that part of it's challenging. Once you get to four and onward, you would expect those to normalize and, and look a lot more like an adult's reference range would. Right, because when you're little, you kind of, it's a good thing to have those elevations in some of these markers because you're building that immunity. You're adding more food. You're developing a microbiome. So in an essence, they actually might be adaptive and good. Yeah, So absolutely. you just don't know. We just don't know. Yeah. And there's actually some interesting literature to suggest that kids with low calprotectin levels mm. comparatively might have more of a risk for developing GI conditions later right. in life. Right. Um, so I don't use a stool test and, and say, oh my gosh, their calprotectin is normal. And that means that they're more likely to develop GI conditions. I, I definitely don't use it that way because I don't think we know enough yet, mm -hmm. but there is some interesting literature that way. Great. Okay. We did question of the day. We're still over time. Got to do the disclaimer. Hit it. Go. The contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only and not to be misconstrued for medical diagnosis or treatment advice. I think you can do it faster. You want to do it again? Try, no. it, try it again. Go faster. You realize by making me repeat this even faster, you're wasting even more time that we could have used with me just doing it at a very leisurely pace. That was a joke. Mm. Next time on The Lab Report, we talk about malabsorption and maldigestion. Yeah, like what's on your differential diagnosis? What do you do about it? What are the action steps? Why are you asking? The... Stop asking me questions. Well, this episode's over. Why are you I asking just, me questions? Maybe we could talk I'm about tired. It next time. I'm tired. Okay. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. Today on The Lab Report, we're going to talk about GI inflammation and what to do about it. Here's where we cue your Johnny Cash impression. I'm going down in a burning ring of fire, <laughs> ring of fire.